Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Pinecker. And uh, folks, I just want to tell you, I have, uh, I would have never guessed in a million years that I would have this next guest on. Um, I'll just give you a little background. So when I first started my channel, um, I, I started it like right around when the Murder Among the Mormons came out, like two days afterwards, was my first episode. And then um, as I forged a relationship with Rick Bennett of Gospel Tangents, who agreed to do a co-production with me, um, he was also at the time interviewing Brent uh, for, because of course, this was the big thing, you know, murder, murder among the Mormons. And so Rick's giving me like a play-by-play -play of like, yeah, Brent called me back because he just remembered something else that he wants to talk about. So I'm going to add some more episodes. So I'm hearing all the, he's giving me the latest about Brent and what he said in his latest interview. Never in a million years would I have guessed that just a matter of months later, Brent would be a guest on my program. So Brent Ashworth, one of the premier collectors of Mormon memorabilia, documents, papers, but also Americana and so much more. Uh, you are at a man who's at the top of his field and also just a wonderful person in general. Brent, welcome to my show. Well, you're too kind, but thank you, Steve. It's great to be with you. So I got in touch with Brent because, well, this is the funny thing. Okay, so I'm at the Mormon History Association, and it was a remarkable weekend that I experienced from the very from the person that I sat next to on the airplane, who had intimate connections with general authorities and even even a former president of the last presiding patriarch of the church, uh, personal relations with them. Um, and, and we had a wonderful three and a half hour conversation to just all the wonderful people that I met at the Mormon History Association from Richard Bushman to Sandra Tanner and all these people who've now since come onto my program. I remember we were at the, uh, what was it? The wagon, the, uh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's the restaurant's name? It's the famous uh, Chuck wagon, Chuck right? Wagon. Yeah. So mm -hmm. this, is the, this is the funny thing. Uh, and I don't normally do this much talking, but I want to give, give us some background here. As we were entering into that room, the hostess was taking us in there. I thought to myself, I, something hit me in my head. And I said, you're going to meet somebody in this room. I knew I was going to walk into that room and I was going to meet a prominent individual. And there seated right beside me is Brent Ashworth. But it didn't surprise me because like, I, I knew I was going to meet somebody. And that's kind of how I was like, okay, that's how this weekend's been because I just every bump into people. So it was just to me, it was a remarkable thing to even just run into you. And I even took a photo of us and posted it on Facebook. Um, so I just feel like there's a real personal connection that I have with you even before even uh, knowing you. So I approached you about coming onto the program because I thought, let's do something different. Let's not just talk about Mark Hoffman, but I wanted us to talk about some items in your collection. So I asked you to pick out a couple items of Mormon memorabilia that you, uh, like some of your favorite items and also maybe something, uh, a favorite item from Americana. And then later we're also gonna talk about your faith. So. Let's get started, Brent. Tell, let's tell me about the first item that you want to talk about today. Well, I brought uh, one of uh, one of the my favorite national items. Uh, maybe we can start with that. I've, sure. I've got a, a, a pretty good collection of national and international uh, autographs. I started collecting when I was only seven years old uh, due to a, so a box of papers that got saved from a fire from my grandmother, and in them were. Uh, it was one box uh, of that contained 12 letters of President Heber J. Grant written to my grandmother back between 1931 and 1933, the Great Depression. And these were quite intimate letters. They were, uh, uh, they obviously were dictated and typed and then she signed them, <clears throat> but they had to do with uh, keeping my uncle on a mission during the time that uh, 
uh, my grandparents didn't think they could afford 25 bucks a month to keep him on a mission to Texas. Uh, and I read these when I got done, I thought, you know, I know more about President Grant now reading these letters than anything I'd ever heard about him in junior Sunday school. And uh, he had died right before I was born. And so uh, I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could collect something interesting or personal of each uh, president of the church? Anyway, that's what got me started. Most collectors start with an idea of getting a set of something. And I put about 15 sets of church presidents autographs together. And then I expanded. My, uh, <clears throat> my mother was a cowgirl from uh, Cody, Wyoming. So I always heard the stories about the roundups and, and uh, the Wild West and uh, Buffalo Bill. <clears throat> that excited me. And then my dad was a uh, uh, was a hero in World War II. He was at the Battle of uh, Iwo Jima, helped build the road up Mount Suribachi the day before the famous, famous flag raising ceremony. Um, and he always told the story in a funny way. He said, as a CB construction battalion, he said he uh, <clears throat> went in, we went in with our picks and shovels and we're getting shot at by the enemy. <laughs> They'd come out of their holes in the ground and shoot us in the backs while our 45 was in a holster. My dad was briefly uh, minorly wounded that day. The next day he had his foot uh, you know, uh, bandaged up on the gangplank of the USS Salt Lake City. And uh, he said, look, they got a Jeep on top of the hill. Sir Bocce was the only uh, mountain there and this tiny island. And he says, uh, look, the Marines are up there. They're putting a flag up. And uh, dad said it was the second flag raising. It looked uh, big enough. It was taken off an LST. Uh, one of those big ships that the tanks rolled out of and stuff. Uh, and it was big enough for everybody to see. And he said, just like the gyrenes, he said, Marines were part of the Navy then. And he said, uh, uh, he said, uh, uh, you know, we go in with our picks and shovels, get shot at building the road. The next day, the Marines go in, the gyrenes, we call them, go in, they take the road uh, that we built, they, they take the hill, they find a pipe, they stick up the flag and they steal the glory. Well, you know, having heard those stories growing up, I was enamored by American history. And so uh, you got to uh, you got to be excited about the founding fathers. This is a this is a letter you probably can't see, but it's a handwritten letter of George Washington. And uh, here's his signature down here. Uh, anyway, uh, this was written during kind of a dark day during the American Revolution. It was uh, headquarters at Springfield. Um, this is a. Uh, uh, and, and it's interesting to me, my wife and I later served a mission in Springfield, um, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, but uh, 20 June 1780, he's writing to a, a general, uh, uh, to uh, Robert Morris, the financier of the revolution. He'd written an earlier letter this day, and he'd written to Morris uh, there, and he said, uh, could you please send me some shirts? Some of my men don't have shirts. And uh, uh, you know, and later uh, he wrote this letter and he said in the second paragraph, in a struggle like ours, perplexed with embarrassments, certainly not having shirts in the morning was one of the things you're referring back to. If it should be my fortune to conduct the military helm in such a manner as to merit the approbation of good men and my suffering fellow citizens, it will be the primary happiness of my life because it is the first and great object of my wishes. Uh, isn't that great? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Just in the middle of a, a letter asking for supplies uh, and uh, very reflective uh, of Washington. I like letters like that because they kind of bring uh, our founding fathers and uh, people of 
of imports that are kind of statues uh, now they kind of bring them alive and, uh, and that's why i like uh, collecting it's exciting to me uh, to pick up a letter or document or something uh, by uh, mata hari or uh, <laughs> or henry the eighth i've got uh, signatures of all these people um marie antoinette uh napoleon bonaparte and then so many of our founding fathers uh, franklin and jefferson and adams and and Madison and all of them. Uh, and Lincoln, of course, my favorite American. I love uh, love collecting Lincoln stuff. You mentioned Civil War, I love Civil War. So I'm constantly collecting Civil War. It's kind of central to our history. Any rate, um, I don't know if that gives you a little idea of the Americana, the world history uh, we collect. There are over a million items in this collection. I've been told by the head of Sotheby's and the head of RR Auctions and other people that it's the largest private collection they've ever seen. Um, and um, I take that as a compliment because it's been 65 years and it's been a lot of fun. And I still I still collect even though we give away a lot of things uh, to uh, the church and the government and everybody. We put on a big display for the 200th anniversary of the uh, signing of the constitution at the uh, uh, United States Supreme Court, the Manuscript Society uh, asked me if I could uh, lend them some things. I lent them a George Washington letter and a, uh, uh, talking about uh, getting the Constitution signed and uh, ratified. And then I also lent them a letter uh, from uh, Elbridge Jerry, the gerrymanderings named after the former governor of uh, Massachusetts. Like I say, my wife and I served our last mission in, in uh, Boston Mission, so we enjoy Massachusetts too. But uh, at any rate, we... Uh, those were on display for a couple of years for the uh, 200th anniversary. And the, the letter from uh, Jerry was written to his wife from the floor of the Constitutional Convention. Now, as a Latter-day Saint, we believe, and other Americans do too, that the Constitution was inspired. And I really do feel like uh, the Lord raised up these uh, individuals that helped form our government and so on. That had to be because they were so diverse and they didn't get along in a lot of ways. Uh, but somehow they were brought together and we got this, uh, I think, divinely inspired constitution, uh, which is pretty amazing. It was a miracle, uh, really, at Philadelphia. And uh, among those was a letter, though, written by Jerry to his wife, uh, Sally. And he says, I've never been so sick of anything that I am of conventioneering. <laughs> so uh, had I known what would have happened here, nothing could have induced me to have come, but here I must stay a little longer. And further, and further in the same letter, this is the one I have on, had on display there. Uh, he says, uh, uh, he says, I'm almost certain that the proceedings are going to lead to a civil war. Well, he's right. He was a century off. <laughs> and uh, three-fifths compromise and things like that did help lead to a civil war. Um, but uh, it's a very insightful. Here's a man that refused to sign the Constitution, uh, was important to the convention, uh, but served as the fourth vice president of the United States under that Constitution. Uh, he was the second VP to die in office. So those things, those little details, they bring people alive. And, uh, and I think that's great. And it's the same, same kind of principle uh, in LDS history, I think. Uh, just two items that I, that I brought today that might be of interest. Uh, when uh, the prophet Joseph Smith was on his way to Carthage uh, at the time of the martyrdom, uh, he, uh, he and the whole city council were, uh, uh, were under indictment for the charge of riot against uh, the destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor Press. And uh, you may recall that uh, he had hidden for a while on a little island 
uh, that everybody looks for when they're in Nauvoo, but of course it's, it's underwater now because <laughs> they raised, well, the Keokuk Dam raised the uh, the uh, Mississippi 80 some feet high. So it's over over the top of that island, but the little island was there back then. And Joseph thought, well, I'll stay here till things uh, blow over, but things didn't blow over at the time of the destruction of the press. And he received a note from Emma via Porter Rockwell uh, saying, uh, come on back and face the music, you'll be fine, essentially. And Joseph said, well, you know, and I guess I'm paraphrasing, but people will be familiar with these uh, statements. If my life's worth nothing to my friends, it's worth nothing to me. And uh, <coughs> Hiram tried to tell him, uh, well, Joseph, let's go back and face the music. You know, the, uh, the Lord's always uh, uh, gotten away through all of these legal proceedings and we'll get through it. And Joseph uh, turned to his brother and says, well, we'll go back, but we'll be butchered. And uh, you know, it's a little different response. And of course they said their goodbyes to their family and they took off uh, uh, from where the temple was being constructed up on the hill in Nauvoo. <clears throat> there are uh, two uh, horse, horsemen statues of Joseph and Hiram up there now. As they looked over the city, the prophet said, these are the best people on earth, but little, little do they know what they're about to face. And they headed down Mulholland and, and towards Carthage. Well, Carthage, 20 miles away, they get within four miles of Carthage and they start stop at the last uh, LDS uh, uh, ranch or, or farm. Um, and uh, they put up their horses for a short time. And just as they get there, uh, uh, 60 armed men ride up under uh, uh, Colonel James E. Dunn. And uh, 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 there's what, Joseph Smith, uh, 18 or so, so people all together in his group. And here's 60 armed uh, militia men under the orders of Thomas Ford, the governor. And they hand Joseph this piece of paper that I got in my hand. Oh, okay, wow. and it's partially torn. But when I first got it, it was actually Wilford Woodruff that got this from the mother of the prophet uh, when uh, Lucy Mack Smith, when he came, came uh, west, uh, he got a little of her hair too. I've got that. And a little piece of the scarf Joseph was wearing at the time of the martyrdom, I got that. Uh, but I brought this little piece because I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, this was handed by Dunn to the prophet. And it's got uh, headquarters Carthage, June 24th, 1844, to Lieutenant General Joseph Smith, Major General Jonathan Dunham, who was left in charge, and all commissioned and non-commissioned officers and privates of the Nabu Legion. General, you are, here, uh, you are here ordered and directed to deliver to Colonel James E. Dunn three pieces of cannon with other carriages and other appurtenances together with all arms. I mean, if you're gonna be part of a uh, conspiracy as we believe, that the governor was uh, to uh, to kill a prophet. You sure got to disarm his troops. He had the biggest uh, personal army in America. Uh, it was a third of the size of the United States Army. We think 2,500, 3,500 uh, brethren, you know, were members of this. Uh, when I first got this piece, the bottom was torn off. Uh, we don't know what happened yet, but we do know that uh, uh, the remainder was brought to uh, from Lucy Mack Smith, given to. Wilford Woodruff, he brought it to uh, uh, Utah with the other little things, a little pouch he had. And um, eventually it ended up on an, in an auction house in, in Boston, Goodspeeds, uh, 1968. And I saw it first there. I'd been collecting for a number of years already. 
but I couldn't afford it. They wanted a huge sum of money for the for it at the time. It doesn't seem like a lot now. It was twenty five hundred bucks, uh, but it was way beyond my means, and I was just a college kid. Um, the interesting thing about it is that uh, uh, the prophet had Willard, Willard Richards write out a uh, an order on the uh, the back of Thomas Ford's order, and incidentally. What I just read you was written by Thomas Ford, and I recognized his handwriting, although his signature was torn off. Um, but uh, Joseph Smith had Willard Richards write out this responsing order, and it just said, Headquarters, uh, Nauvoo Legion, Prairie, four miles west of Carthage, June 24th, 1844, 10 minutes to 10 o'clock a.m. Uh, and it's directed to uh, Major General Jonathan Donham, all commissioned, non-commissioned officers and privates of the Nauvoo Legion, you are hereby ordered to comply strictly and without delay with the within order of Governor Thomas Ford, Commander-in-Chief. And then Joseph actually signed this order. I don't know if you can see his signature, but mm -hmm. this is believed to be the uh, third to the last known signature we have of Joseph. Because uh, a number of the things in Carthage jails that were uh, written under his name were, were signed by uh, Willard Richards rather than Joseph. But this one actually was signed by him on the way. And, um, uh, and then Richards has added uh, uh, Lieutenant General Nauvoo Legion underneath his signature. Now he's ordering uh, the Nauvoo Legion to comply strictly with the order from the commander in chief, Thomas Ford. And Joseph said, if you always, if you wanted to change anything, you didn't do it at the end of a, a pistol or bayonet, you did it at the, uh, uh, you know, at the ballot box and uh, under our constitution. This is a great example of that because he must have known by his earlier comments that he's probably not gonna make it out of this this time, uh, but he still uh, uh, didn't ask for the novel Legion to come save him, uh, which is interesting. Uh, the last uh, note, the last item that I got in a fight with Hoffman over turned out to be a forgery of uh, Joseph uh, asking <laughs> Dunham to bring help to, to, to save him. It was obviously made up, and it was it was taken from an anti-Mormon book that was published in the 1860s, and uh, and uh, we were all aware of it at the time. But at any rate, this particular piece, uh, to fill in the rest of the story, uh, to complete the document, uh, I have to kind of guess, but Dunn was probably surprised, the colonel, when he got this order, Joseph Smith. Uh, he brought these 60 men to enforce it. He didn't need to. <laughs> and... Uh, and, uh, uh, and I'm sure he must have said, well, Mr. Smith, that's fine, but I don't know if anybody's going to agree that this is your signature and they're ordering the disbandment of your, you know, of your uh, novel legion or disarming your legion. Will you come back with me and disarm your legion? So Joseph agreed to do that. And he went all the way back to Nauvoo. He disarmed the legion. We know that because the note of James E. Dunn here, the colonel, saying that he got all the cannons, augers, and guns and so on uh, from the Legion. Then Joseph headed back uh, to join the group and, uh, and that's why he didn't arrive till midnight uh, that night in uh, Carthage. And the Carthage Grays greeted him with, uh, you're not getting out of here alive and so on. The governor had to come out and say, you'll have an opportunity to interview the Smiths tomorrow, go to bed. And uh, so that end of the night. The part of the story I didn't tell you is that when Joseph was handed this is when he said, I now go as a lamb to the slaughter. Uh, and that kinds of kind of fills in the history, and that's why it becomes exciting for me to uh, to collect these kinds of things over the years. And then finally, I wanted to. This is the only known letter 
that uh, Brigham Young wrote on the final trek to Utah. Uh, it's the Vanguard Company. I think you can see Brigham's signature here. It's handwritten, which is unusual because Joseph, uh, Joseph uh, M. Brigham uh, had scribes writing everything out. Like Joseph said in his 1839 personal history, he said, I hardly ever wrote, take up the pen myself. And anybody that collects Joseph Smith items would agree with him. <laughs> you know, he had a myriad of uh, people that would sign for him as well as so on. So, so the, uh, the fact that order was signed by Joseph is a rarity. Plus, uh, this is handwritten by Brigham. He's on the trail. Uh, he wrote a number of, air, of letters on the way to winter quarters, but this is the only letter that's ever been found, according to Leonard Arrington. I let Leonard put it in his book on Brigham Young years ago. And, uh, and uh, he gives me credit for that. But just one little part of this. This was actually part of a priesthood manual the church put out years ago. It just said, owned by a private collector. Okay. And uh, I'll just read the little per first part of it because Brigham didn't have time to write out letters. And the first part was written April 20th, 1847. Now we know he's going to arrive on the 24th of July. Uh, but uh, it's 9 o'clock p.m. He's writing it to Mary A. Young, Mary Angel Young at Winter Quarters, his wife. My dear companion, and the interesting thing about it, too, is that he uses this phonetic spelling. Uh, and uh, so, you know, if it sounds right, it's spelled right. I think that ought to still be the rule. <laughs> In many cases, I don't know. I don't know how to spell anymore. As I get older, it's frustrating. Uh, at any rate, but uh, we do have word check now, and that's that's good. <laughs> but as Pioneer Camp of Israel, uh, and uh, uh, it's interesting, Israel is I-S-R-E-A-L, 95 miles from winter quarters. Uh, my dear companion, pardoner, P-A-R-D-N-E-R, in tribulation. Okay. I should have written to you by Brother Rockwood, but had not time. The camp was to be organized in a great deal, G-R-A-T-E deal to be done to prepare for moving, M-O-O-V-I-N-G. Uh, on Sunday, I should have written, but did not feel able to. I laid, L-A-D-E, a bed and thought of a great deal. I won't spell these out now, but you got the idea. Uh, a great deal I should say to you. The camp is in good health and first-rate spirits. They have never felt better in their lives. I think my health has been very much improved yesterday and today. You mentioned in your letter that you heard I lay on the ground the night I left home. I did, but do not think it hurt me. Uh, when I arrived in camp, I found myself completely tired out. I thank you a thousand times for your kind letters to me, more especially for your kind acts, and still more for your kind heart. I pray for you and the children continually and for all our family. I do think the Lord has blessed me with one of the best families that any man ever had on the earth. Any rate, uh, personal letter kind of brings Brigham alive. And uh, he didn't have time to finish the letter until uh, he started writing on April 20th. He didn't finish this letter, another long paragraph, uh, until May 4th. <laughs> and then it was, it was folded up, uh, an address leaf was used, you know, no envelopes at the time. Uh, he didn't come in until about the Civil War period anyway. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, it kind of gives you a little feel for both Joseph and Brigham. I just wanted to show you there's other things I have that help do that. And uh, not running, want to just give credit to the, the brethren. I've got a lot of uh, letters of the women too in history. One of the interesting things about uh, the women, both in Mormondom, Liza Snow, Emma Smith, the women are much rarer than the men. 
in handwritten items that have survived. Uh, it's true in world history too. There's 10 Louis XVI for every Marie Antoinette signature. Uh, there's at least 10 Napoleons, maybe 20 for each uh, Josephine letter. Um, Emma Smith is 10 times rarer than the prophet Joseph Smith. Um, and uh, it comes all down, Eliza R. Snow is rarer than Brigham Young, many times. I've often wondered about that, and I thought, well, who, who saves this stuff? Anyway, it's probably generally the women that save it because they outlive the men more times than, than not. Uh, and I, I've come to the conclusion, it may be wrong, that uh, uh, do you think they want ever, anybody reading their mail? when they're gone. <laughs> you can read their husbands. We don't care about that. Although uh, Martha Washington uh, has, has been the, uh, on the, the bad end of historians for uh, agreeing with her husband to destroy their correspondence among each other. And so uh, other than three letters that she missed, we don't have any correspondence between uh, Martha and George Washington. She destroyed them all uh, due to their agreement. Anyway, I hope that gives you a little taste or flavor of what I do. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm glad for you sharing all this. You know, you had mentioned that uh, there was a document that you and Hoffman were fighting over that later proved to be a, a, a hoax. Was that a hoax that he generated or was this a hoax that was produced in a, in a previous time? No, he, he created it. It was the oh, okay. Dunham letter, as I okay. mentioned. And, uh, Dean Jesse put it in his uh, personal writings of uh, Joseph Smith. It was the last entry because it was supposedly the last letter from okay. the uh, Carthage jail. But when um, uh, uh, my friend George Rockmorton uh, borrowed it, uh, you know, because I read him the riot act now, if you take this, you know, we laugh about it, George and I now, because the thing was worthless, but I'd spent a lot of money on it. And I'd gone through a lot of heck uh, with Hoffman to get it, to recover it from someone that he'd sold it out from under me on. Uh, and, uh, and here it was a forgery all along. <laughs> and uh, Throckmorton said that this this uh, forgery, the Dunham letter was so lousy, he said that it helped break the case. He used it, you know, it led to other forgeries. <laughs> when I let him out, he couldn't get he couldn't get uh, the church at the time to to lend him anything. And uh, and I'd been a prosecutor, so I knew this was a murder case, and he needed to look at it. But I knew the documents were authentic, right? <laughs> They've been vetted by some of the best uh, knowledgeable people we knew at the time, Charles Hamlin, Ken Rendell, I knew all these people. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I, I read him the riot act when I let him borrow the Dunham and a couple of the other things that I bought from Hoffman. I said, these things are really valuable, you know, really important. Yeah. And, uh, I guess we have to laugh about it 35 years later, but yeah. uh, made quite a scene. George and I laugh about it now. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Just the whole connection you had, the stories that you have to tell are, are just truly amazing to me. And, you know, one of the things I had mentioned to you early on was I, you know, everybody wants to talk about Mark Hoffman, and that's fine. It's a great story. But I, I, I find your story and how it your in your in your personal faith journey that you had, because, um, you know, you're, you're a lifelong, uh, you know, believing uh, Orthodox Mormon, and uh, you um, you know, believe in, in the, the brethren as being, you know, uh, divinely uh, appointed, you know, and so you're, you're very faithful, but, you know, for a lot of people who maybe get involved in Mormon history and read some of the things that you would have read would sometimes be, have their faith challenged in those areas, but also just everything that you experience with the Hoffman saga and, and other things we'll get into as well. Um, all throughout this process is you're, 
doing all this research, how does your faith interact with what you've been doing, your lifelong uh, collecting and everything like that? Just tell me a little bit of the roadmap of your faith journey. Sure, you bet. Well, when I was a, when I was a youth, I read the Book of Mormon for the first time. Uh, I was uh, 12. I didn't finish it till I was 13. I was be what we call a deacon in the church at that time, uh, just a young man. But we were uh, encouraged to read the Book of Mormon, and I uh, was serious about it, and I wanted to read and, and know about it. As I read the book, I felt a power, a spirit in it, you know, that, uh, that I didn't read with. I, I was always reading. I mean, I got a lot of books, and I've always read, but it was a, a it was a book that stood out from anything else I'd ever read before. And uh, there's this charge in Moroni 10, 4, and 5 that after we've read it, that we, if we ask with real, God with real intent and so on, that he'll, show, he'll reveal the truth of us uh, by the power of the Holy Ghost. Uh, and, uh, and I took that literally, uh, I guess being a youth too. In fact, I remember uh, it was a, uh, don't want to call it a dark and starry night, but it was. <laughs> and uh, I went up on uh, Y Mountain. Uh, here in Provo, because our family lived uh, just in the foothills at the time. My father was an architect that designed one of the early homes on the East Bench, uh, above what now, where the Provo Temple is, was built later. Uh, and uh, and there's, a, um, there's a water tank up on the hill, and I uh, went up there, nobody was there. In fact, the, I guess because the city was so much smaller than all that, you could see the stars in the Milky Way that night. It was just a real clear night. Uh, it's hard to see them now with the light and so on, but it was very easy then. And I was just in a real spiritual mood wanting to, uh, to test uh, the challenge that Moroni had at the end of the book. And I knelt down and prayed. And I had a spiritual experience uh, as a youth. You know, I, it's hard for me to explain. It's kind of like trying to uh, explain the, the taste of salt or something. But it, it really, uh, the testimony that I had that I came down with, I've felt a little like Moses coming down from the mountain as I've read about his story, you know, uh, with the Ten Commandments. I felt like I got my own witness that the book was true. I felt very powerful and strong that the, that this is true, that is correct. Well, I tell you that because I had a lot of uh, experiences since then that, that, that built on that on that faith. We had a, uh, a bad fire in our home uh, up there on the hill uh, just a few short years, a couple of years later. Um, when I was a teenager, and uh, it looked like our whole home was going to burn to the ground. Somebody had come in during the night. We got a, a, a brand new 1964 uh, Pontiac Grand Prix, if you remember those, and it had the wide track, you know, it was a big wide track Pontiac, big lumbering tank, uh, but we were proud of it, and uh, it represented a, a, a sizable sum to my parents to, to, to buy it, and it was in a garage that was uh, under our uh, under our home, but Dad designed the home with the, uh, the carport right under the bedrooms. And uh, I was in a downstairs bedroom with my brother uh, next door to, in an adjacent room. Uh, my mother uh, went to choir practice. She was a choir director in our ward. And she'd leave for 6 a.m. choir practice on Saturday morning. Somebody had snipped this carburetor. It was the first one commercially of a four barrel that was in a commercial automobile. And somebody, we had an open carport and somebody clipped it out during the night. We didn't know that. So when my mother went down to, uh, to uh, start the car, she was pushing gasoline onto spark plugs and it created a fire. And the first thing I knew, I heard this big boom 
<laughs> and it was right now I was right next to the garage and uh, the door was open. So there were fire, there was fire that was spewing out of the garage. And uh, it really frightened me, it woke me up, I hit the floor. Um, and I ran around the house to the, to the garage. Um, and I saw my dad by that point with a, uh, he's, he was an old sailor that used to put out fires and stuff, um, uh, who was uh, trying to extinguish the fire, even though it wouldn't work with water, he was trying to extinguish the fire, try to get it, keep it from burning the house down. This was really a dangerous situation. I remember being very frightened, uh, which didn't happen often with me. And I went back into the house, went into the bathroom upstairs, now down next to the commode and asked Heavenly Father to put the fire out. It was just that direct. Uh, the fire department was at least three miles away at the time, and I knew it had been a while before they get up on the hill to put this out. At any rate, I, I went out, I went back down to the garage and the fire was out. And, uh, and I really felt like that was an answer to prayer. Well, I've had a lot of exper experiences like that over the years that I couldn't explain otherwise than just a fulfillment of prayer. I've had a lot of times where I prayed for things and they didn't happen. <laughs> you know, but this is one where it did, and it was immediate and it was necessary, or a house would have burned down and people could have been hurt. Anyway, I always uh, thank the Lord for those uh, kind of experiences, as most uh, Christians do, because, uh, uh, you know, there's no other explanation really for them. Uh, we've had other experiences with our children or where they've lost things, or we've been able to find things where children were choking on things and we ask a silent quick prayer and uh, they seem to have gotten answered we've had other prayers that were not answered uh, immediately i think all prayers were ultimately answered but on the uh the terrible accident or son later we had many prayers uh we didn't feel a lot of them were answered the way we would have liked but they were definitely answered and uh i've had this hope this feeling that's what faith is really isn't it uh, you know, that uh, things will work out in the end, that uh, the Lord knows uh, uh, the end from the beginning. And, uh, and I've had a strong testimony in the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, mostly because of my testimony in the Book of Mormon. Um, and uh, so for me, it's uh, not been a trial to, uh, uh, to feel that uh, prophets are called by uh, proper priesthood authority uh, to the positions that they're in. Uh, doesn't mean they're perfect people at all. Joseph Smith admitted of many mistakes. Uh, Brigham Young certainly did. Um, but in my opinion, they were prophets and they were not fallen prophets. They were good prophets. Um, and I think uh, people have asked me over the years, well, especially after Hoffman and so on, well, how can you remain a faithful Latter-day Saint uh, when you've been through these experiences and the prophets uh, evidently weren't in tune? I said, well, you don't understand the role of a prophet. The way I read the scriptures, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but it's my own interpretation, is, is that prophets are called for a particular purpose by our Heavenly Father, different times. And I'm talking about prophets from Adam on down, uh, Moses, Noah, they're called for a particular purpose, right? And I think Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and so on too. Um, Joseph Smith said, and it was one of my favorite uh, quotes years ago, he said, there are many prophets not of our faith. Um, and that makes sense because God's no respecter of persons, right? He tells us that throughout the scriptures. Uh, it's everywhere throughout the Bible, as well as the uh, Latter-day scriptures, that he's, he loves all of his children equally. And, um, and so that makes sense. Uh, I always felt that Abraham Lincoln was a prophet, you know, became one. 
Um, and I think uh, probably Washington was and others. Uh, there are certain times that uh, leaders are called, uh, you know, I mean, Lincoln was the, what, the biggest minority president in the history of the country up to that time. What, 38, 39% of the popular vote, the country was divided. A miracle, absolute miracle he was elected, but he was the right man at that time. He wasn't perfect, he made a lot of mistakes. But uh, in the process, uh, the union was saved, the constitution was saved. Um, you know, uh, many times uh, he irritated the people in the North thinking that he was gonna, you know, uh, uh, was going to uh, wipe out slavery and that wasn't his purpose, you know, <laughs> till later in the war uh, when it was made known to him, I think after he uh, studied scriptures. And this, I had a quick question. I've, yeah. I've, I read somewhere that the, that he actually checked out a Book of Mormon? He did, he checked out a first edition. In fact, we know the book, the book is still there at the Library of Congress for an eight month period. Uh, he checked it out. And uh, I can't help but think that he, that he read it because he was at a time after Willie had died in the White House when both he and Mary were, uh, uh, were uh, driven to either insanity or as he said, uh, I was driven to my knees. <laughs> so his mother was driven near a sanity and she would never go back. Uh, Mary Lincoln, I've got a letter of hers that's just still draws tears when you read it about the death of, uh, of Willie in the White House and take, giving a friend a, a, a photograph that's also still there in the letter. And then Lincoln is free Frank, the outside of the envelope. Uh, but the letter is just such a, tears you up even to read it now uh, about this suffering, this mother. And she says, me and my husband have got, been going through. Uh, Mary would never walk in that, uh, you know, Willie died in uh, uh, the time of uh, uh, the year Antietam was later in 1862, early on. They had three more years in the White House before Lincoln was assassinated. And yet uh, Mary would never walk in uh, Willie's room again after he died. They had been downstairs shaking hands with, you know, had a, uh, uh, at a uh, presentation downstairs in the White House. And she always felt like they should have been upstairs with Willie. He passed away during that time. Uh, she would never go into his room. Cat had been sick with the same thing. Uh, they think they, they got sick from the White House water, which may have, may have happened. Uh, but Tad survived that particular one and Willie died. Willie was everyone's favorite. He was 11 years old and uh, he would write poetry. He, could, he was great with the language like his father. Uh, and um, his dad, uh, they couldn't get him out of Willie's room. They had to wait most of a week before they could remove Willie's body and get the president out of there. There was a few days we didn't have a president. And uh, he was so uh, distraught at uh, the passing of Willie. So, you know, uh, he said, well, mother was nearly driven to the, to the uh, asylum on the hill and I was driven to my knees. And, uh, and it was during that time that he checked out those books and so on, those religious books, not just Latter-day Saint, but other religions too. And the Bible, of course, he'd grown up on. So he, was, uh, he knew his Bible pretty well. Just uh, since I've got somebody here that I can ask these questions to, uh, sure. there's another, I believe I've heard that there's a letter that um, Lincoln wrote to Brigham Young, essentially saying, um, that when there's a tree, when a, when a farmer's plowing his uh, field uh, that, and, and there's a tree stump or a, a felled, large felled tree in the middle of the field that you just plow around it, basically implying to bring them that we're gonna leave you alone. 
Yeah, I don't know of a letter, but I'll tell you, that okay. came from uh, Nicholas Grossbeck. And uh, Nick had known Lincoln. It's one of the few Latter-day Saints that had known Lincoln in Illinois. Uh, oh. Became a personal friend. And when uh, uh, one of the first acts that was passed by Congress during the Civil War was the Homestead Act, 1862. And among it was uh, one of the things that was thrown in was this first anti-polygamy provision in 1862. And Brigham Young out as governor of Utah Territory, uh, or at least out in Utah Territory, had been the governor, uh, was uh, very concerned about how the president would enforce this act. So he sent Nick Grossbeck to uh, Washington, D.C. to sit down with the president about it. And uh, Nick came to the White House. It's amazing Lincoln wasn't shot earlier. They say there's over 80 attempts were made on Lincoln's life during the war. Isn't it interesting how the Lord preserved him till the war was done? <laughs> His mission, I guess, was basically over. Uh, to me, I think that's a miracle in American history in and of itself. I mean, they had to hide the guy in the baggage car, you know, Alan Pinkerton and all of them coming through Philadelphia and Baltimore on the way to his inauguration. There was so much hatred. States were leaving at the time. The 38%, 40% president, you know, um, and uh, a lot of attempts on his life. Uh, but here they had one guard at the door uh, uh, at the White House and Nick went in. I uh, got an appointment. He sat down with the president and he says, hey, Brigham wants to know if you're gonna enforce this law. And that's when Lincoln, Lincoln always had to tell a story. And that's what he said. Well, you know, it's like when I was on the farm as a kid in Indiana and my father, Thomas, I was not a farmer, but he wanted me to be. And uh, he'd send me out to plow the field. And, uh, and sometimes you'd come to a stump or some tree you'd cut down and you couldn't go through the furrow, couldn't go through it. So he went around it. Uh, he says, go tell Brigham if he doesn't bother me, I won't bother him. And, uh, and that's, that's where that story comes down. Okay, great. Wow. Great That's, story. You bet. It is. It is. Yeah. I don't know of any letters of Lincoln. I, I saw one letter I told the church about it years ago. It was an 1840 letter of Joseph, not of Joseph Smith, of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, it was uh, after his one term in Congress. And he was still very politically connected, of course, but he was kind of a loser at this point. You know? But he was, and it's during the era of states' rights, so it's before the Civil War when all that changed with the 14th Amendment and everything else. Uh, and uh, states were very concerned about the tariff. Now that's something a state couldn't care less about now, except for maybe New York and California, some of the, you know, but the federal government took that issue over, okay? It's in the constitution. And, uh, but at, at Lincoln's time, uh, states like Illinois and so on, they had the Mississippi and so on, worry about, uh, about the tariffs and about how, you know, uh, their taxes and things. And there was this comment in this 1840 letter of Lincoln's uh, written to another politician. I forgot who it is. I saved the, the catalog. It was Swan Gowrie's. Uh, nobody ever saw but me, I guess, because I, I bet on the thing. It, it went for like 80,000. I didn't get it. Uh, but, uh, but I saved the, the catalog entry. I asked the church later when I was a missionary up there if they ever found it. And they didn't, they didn't know anything about what I was talking about. But uh, Lincoln says, I think I'll stop off and talk to Joe Smith and his people about this issue. And I really think he's talking about the prophet because of the way he put it, Joe Smith and his people. Because uh, they were a big part of uh, the, the Mississippi, the tariff, you know. Uh, and so I think that mention of Joe Smith was the prophet Joseph Smith and that he was familiar. There's always been this question of whether they ever met. I think they would have at least shaken hands. Uh, when Lincoln was in the Long Nine in Springfield and Joseph went to get the uh, 
uh, you know, get uh, the approval for the uh, for uh, Nauvoo and uh, and other things. You know, the university and other things. They had to go to get approval of the of the state government. But uh, it's an interesting issue, anyway. Yeah. Interesting question. Very fascinating. Yeah, I'm, I'm loving this very much. So I, I want to get back to your faith journey a little bit, and I, yeah, I, but I love this yeah. digression. This is great. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the period of time now when um, things are really starting to unravel a little bit with this whole Hoffman thing, where you're, you're realizing that you're, well, let's talk a little bit about that first, about maybe some of your relationship with Gordon B. Hinckley. Um, and because he was so interested in the, the, the acquisition of documents, he was even kind of anticipating that the lost 116 pages might come forth. Um, well, that was my question every time I went in his office. You know, he's, he's very first time I went in his office, he said, I met him when I was in the army, but that was years before I didn't know him. But, uh, but I felt like I knew him uh, after our association with uh, during that Hoffman year, years. And the uh, very first time I went in his office, and every time thereafter, even later, he asked me the same question. Brent, what have you learned this week about the lost manuscript of the Book of Mormon? Now, when he first asked me that, I was really, I was really thrown off because I don't know anything about it other than anybody else does, I guess. I assume it's alive today. And, uh, and I didn't know how to respond. I just say, well, uh, President, uh, I don't know a thing about it. I'm sorry. you know. But he kept asking me that question every time I went in. That seemed to be Brent Ashworth's question. I've asked other people, did you get that question? I even asked Mark that question. Did you get that question when you went in? And he said, no, and other people said the same thing. So I assume that was my question. And um, anyway, about the fifth or sixth time prophet, uh, president, uh, his counselor then, uh, Hinckley asked me that. I said, well, president, you've asked me that every time I've been in here. <laughs> and uh, and uh, you've really got the curiosity in me up as a collector. Do they still exist? And without even skipping a beat, which is the way he was, he says, oh, they'll be provided to us at the proper time. But our members don't know what's in the Book of Mormon yet. Now, what'd you bring in to show me today? In other words, don't waste my time, kids. That's why it went. But it was a funny question. And it was, it was all, and the other question he'd asked me about half the time, not as many times during the thing, he'd say, um, now, Brent, would you like to know what the enemies of the church are up to this week? <laughs> and, uh, what are you going to say? No. I said, sure. You know, what are they up to, President? And he says, oh, they're trying to keep us from building the Denver Temple. That would have been in August or something of 82. But they won't succeed. Now, let's see what you got today. <laughs> you know? So it's kind of like a rhetorical question he had to answer. Uh, but it was uh, it was funny. He had a great sense of humor. Yeah, it sounds like uh, you had a, quite a relationship with him, and I've even I've even talked to some skeptics or people who are critics of the church. Some who, are, who um, can just be very, I don't know, just dismissive of a lot of things about faith and belief and all that kind of stuff. And and uh, they often some will even be so cynical as to say, "Oh, well, none of those leaders really believe it. It's just a whatever." And I go to him and say, "Listen, uh, Gordon B. Hinckley." was eagerly anticipating those lost 116 pages coming out. I said, he was a believer. He was, you bet. Yeah. And so I, I just want to tell people that because I think sometimes, you know, you, you can find these things out and not try to be so cynical, but you know, that you don't ask those questions unless you're a believer. And uh, I think that's important for just an insight that I kind of, that I got from, from your interview with, with Rick Bennett. You're and right. so you're in this time period, um, it comes out now that just about everything well, 
before we do that, let me ask you, you had told me the other day that uh, Mark Hoffman often would tell you or say things that would be to challenge your faith. Maybe just talk a little bit about that. Well, he, he would, as I look back on it now, uh, he would say things that uh, would challenge my faith. And only, only really uh, one time uh, that I remember was ever really challenged by something he said, but he seemed to be making a lot of attempts at it. I remember when uh, the Lucy Mack Smith letter, uh, when I purchased that, and I had quite a bit involved with that. I ended up with it, and uh, uh, the church, uh, when they found out about it, was going to hold a press conference on it. The church held four press conferences during those years. Two of them were Hoffman items. They were all Hoffman items, but two of them were items that he brought to a press conference, the Anthon transcript and the Joseph Smith the Third blessing. Uh, and see, I didn't meet Hoffman until after that, until after the Joseph Smith the Third blessing. And I was an inquisitive collector. In fact, uh, our first uh, meeting was by phone. Uh, you know, I had uh, called him up because I got his uh, number from uh, Steve Barnett, a uh, good friend of mine. Uh, we'd had an autograph business in the 70s together. It's called Ashworth and Barnett. And uh, he was working for Cosmic Airplane Books, and Hoffman had been in the day before with uh, some supposed hair of Joseph and Hiram Smith, which uh, I was given a copy of, uh, a photocopy of, of it. And... Uh, at any rate, I got his phone number from, uh, I'd heard about him by then, and I got his phone number from uh, Steve, and I called uh, Mark up. He says, oh, yeah, I've been meaning to get a hold of you. <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, uh, yeah, he says, I know you're a collector. He says, there's something you're looking. I says, yeah, I'm looking for a, a Joseph Smith handwritten letter. I says, I've got several documents, but I've never owned a letter. Oh, I just happen to have one. Yeah, the first phone call, he told me about this, uh, this letter eventually sold me for $6,000 that was uh, uh, signed on uh, March 6, 1833, Joseph's writing Emma about uh, some brother says uh, that we should donate our cross plow to help the poor, okay, and, uh, uh, and I was thrilled with that, and I picked it up, and I took notes down, being an attorney, I took notes on a legal-sized paper, legal pad. I didn't find the paper till I found, was uh, going through my desk years after Hoffman went to prison. I found, found the paper wadded up in the bottom drawer of my desk. Uh, and we were moving our, our offices at the time. And uh, here was this note I'd taken down, uh, word for word, this letter uh, and uh, all the date. It was in uh, May of, uh, of 81. And I'd taken down uh, this information. And then there was a note on the bottom saying, it came from a large Texas collection, been there for generations. Well, that became the, uh, the dumping zone for Hoffman for anything. <laughs> it became the McClellan collection is what it became. But he didn't have a name for it when I first met him. It was just a big Texas collection. <laughs> I got a big laugh out of that years ago, years later when I found the note. But uh, that's that's where it came from. I'm not sure I answered your question. I don't know where. I'm, sometimes a train goes off the track. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was. Uh, it was. It was more like so. Well, actually, we'll get back to uh, because basically, basically about how he would sometimes challenge your faith. And one of those was the 1828 oh, yeah. Jos Josiah uh, Stowell letter, right. um, mm -hmm. where you he, he produces this letter that basically sh seems to indicate that Joseph is still involved in treasure digging as late as 1828. So talk about that. Yeah, I couldn't figure that. Well, I had promises out of Hoffman, many he didn't keep, but one of them was, I want your next 
Joseph Smith letter that you get, okay? Uh, he was still living out in Sandy at the time. He hadn't moved it into his parents' home. In fact, uh, uh, he always had to pass the Haas Hoffman sign at his parents. I have that sign in my store now, if you want, ever want to see it. Uh, but at any rate, they use it for the Netflix deal. But uh, uh, anyway, he was living down there at the time. And he said, uh, Brent, I sold this letter uh, of Joseph Smith, handwritten letter, 1828 Canandaigua. Uh, directly to uh, President Hinckley. And I was a little surprised uh, that he had a letter without telling me about it. He says, oh, you wouldn't have wanted this letter, Brent. This was not a faith-promoting letter, okay? <laughs> and uh, uh, any rate, uh, uh, he said, uh, I told President Hinckley that I hadn't kept a copy of it, but I do have a copy of it. Would you like to hear it? I said, look, if you told the president you don't have a copy, I don't want to hear it. You got to destroy the copy. Uh, but anyway, as I was leaving his home, uh, heading out to my car in front, uh, he uh, was reading me the letter. And uh, it was uh, uh, to Josiah Stoll, 1828. Uh, and he, it sounded like he was still involved with, uh, from its contents, with uh, money digging and so on. And I couldn't figure. I thought, well, what's the prophet dealing with Stoll, uh, you know, who had employed him as a money digger, basically? Uh, in 1828, when he'd had those uh, Moroni visits, you know, in 25, didn't make any sense to me. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I got in my car and I really was starting to question Joseph Smith for about 45 minutes. <laughs> I don't remember any other time in my life where I ever did that. But at any rate, I, I was heading down to, I decided, well, I'm going to go straight to my dad's office. My dad had been a had been an LDS bishop. He was very wise and, and I loved him. We were close. And so I got down there. He was an architect and uh, he left his partner. We went into his office and, and I just laid it on him. What I just told you about uh, Hoffman, just taking him with this letter and it's got this and this. And I remember uh, my dad saying, well, son, there's going to be a lot of things in life that you're not going to have answers for. He says, but I know you have, uh, uh, you have faith that the gospel is true. And uh, Joseph Smith was a prophet. The Book of Mormon is true. I says, yeah, that's true. He says, well, I've learned to put those questions that I have on my mental shelf. Because I feel like the Lord will answer those questions at some point in time. And I suggest you do that yourself. Best advice I ever got. Of course, I put it on my mental shelf. and it wasn't there very long, a couple of years <laughs> before it was established that was a fake. But, uh, but I think it's good advice for all of us to remember, you know, when we get challenged on our faith is that uh, uh, it may not be the faith that's wrong. It may be the fact that, that uh, uh, the Lord will answer in his own due time. Uh, and um, uh, there were other times when uh, earlier, as I look back on it, where Hoffman, I think, was trying to create some kind of a wedge between me and my testimony. One of them was uh, right before the news conference on the Lucy Max Smith letter. Uh, where uh, I, we, I, hadn't, I hadn't been involved with the church in a press conference before. They did two on two Hoffman pieces I had. One was the Lucy Mack and the other was the other Martin Harris letter he wrote that was in pencil that they never charged, which was a faith promoting letter signed Martin Harris in uh, the indelible pencil. Anyway, they did press conference on both of those, but before the one they did on Lucy Mack Smith, which was in August of 82, uh, Mark says, I'll bet he came to my living room. And I remember him saying, I bet they're going to try to do the same thing they did to me with the Anton transcript. 
he said, uh, uh, you know, making it sound like they did some nefarious thing with him, with the transcript. I knew that he ended up selling that to the church or in trading it. And he says, I'll bet they're going to tell you that, uh, that you need to turn it over. You know, well, you know, a collector, I guess you'd think a collector would be upset about just having to turn something over. But uh, that didn't contradict my faith at all the way I thought of it. I says, well, fine, if they ask for it, I'll give it to them, Mark. You know, and uh, I think that, I think that really bugged him. <laughs> I remember that. I remember a few other times. I'd tell him a few faith promoting or spiritual experiences I had. I felt like I had with the brethren, particularly with uh, President Hinckley. And he'd come up with something that was more marvelous, you know. Well, they gave me, you know, uh, basically these marvelous uh, uh, promises that I would fulfill prophecy by doing thus and said. I mean, it was just a bunch of uh, BS, but, uh, but he felt the need, I guess, to kind of put me down that way in my spiritual beliefs, you know? My faith was not based on documents. My faith was not based on other things other than the testimony that I had from a youth, and that's, that's really never varied, you know? I mean, if anything, it's increased over time, and seeing the brethren struggle with the Hoffman thing, just uh added to my faith because I feel like, well, maybe there's a chance for me too, you know? I mean, they've got, they've got their calling. We all, I'm, I'm a ward librarian, you know? It's a job actually I've lusted after. You're not supposed to lust after church calling, but I've wanted to be a ward librarian all my life. I get uh, David Mackleby, who's a well-known uh, political scientist at BYU, stuck his head in one day and said, Brent, I want to check out a first edition. <laughs> so we, had a good, we had a good laugh. Uh, but the point is, is that, uh, it doesn't matter where you serve. I mean, you know, I believe that uh, the Lord called those men uh, for a particular special purpose, and I fully sustain them. And I think they sustain, sustain me in my ministry calling or whatever I've got in the church, too. So it doesn't bother me where people serve. I mean, uh, the great example of that is, uh, is Jesus Christ, you know, and he's a great example that titles and positions and things like that. I mean, born in a stable. I mean, the son of son of God, I mean, good grief, you know, mm. yeah. <laughs> how can you question the calling of a prophet if you don't understand what the role are? Every prophet almost has been uh, deceived or attempted to be deceived. I mean, go read your Bible, you know, I mean, uh, you look at, uh, well, almost all of them. Uh, Noah's a great example. I mean, uh, Moses is a great example, I mean, and, uh, and of course, David, King David, there are others. Uh, Probably the, the greatest one that was a target was Jesus Christ. They were always trying to, you know, Pharisees and Sadducees, but look at Judas. <laughs> I mean, they're always trying to fool the, prop, the the Lord. But he wasn't just a prophet. He was a son of God, you know. He knew what they were up to, uh, where a lot of the prophets didn't. Hmm. Well, there's our example right there, Jesus Christ. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, observation there. I always like it when Mormons talk about jesus because uh that's something we have in common with each other as uh right. as i always appreciate that when it's brought up I, I have a great i have a great jewish friend who's passed away and uh i have great catholic friends have great evangelical friends have friends and all kinds and we've been able to talk about jesus christ there hasn't been any any problems with that uh, our our belief system may differ slightly but we're all basically in the same wavelength and uh my Jewish friend one time, we got a big discussion about Jesus. And he says, how come you make such a big deal out of one of our great rabbis? 
<laughs> we, had, we had a good laugh over that. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, that's, that's a really cool thing that you are able to have these conversations and dialogues with people of other faiths, because that's kind of what I'm trying to do as well in reaching out to not only to the uh, LDS, but also different branches throughout the restoration. And I have found that there's a great love for Jesus that many people have in your movement. And I want to acknowledge and, and honor that. Um, I just, you know, one of the things, you know, as we're, as we're going through this story, you know, this the whole Hoffman episode was, was truly just a great tragedy. I remember you even talking about Gordon B. Hinckley, just thinking how, what a waste, what a waste with this Hoffman guy, you know, he could have been something. And, but then at this time, something very tragic happens to you, to you and your family with um, your son getting hit by a car. And um, I just want you to maybe talk about that a little bit. Sure. Well, um, yeah, it was, uh, uh, the point in time was the day we left. Uh, my, my wife's uh, family, uh, right after the bombing, tried to get uh, us to leave town for a few days, you know, get out of Utah for a few days. Uh, leave your kids there and come. Well, you know, you may know that uh, that when uh, Hoffman was uh, was blown up by the bomb that may have been mine um, in his car, that uh, uh, I had four phone calls within a within a short time of them announcing it was Mark Hoffman blown up to leave town. Uh, two were attorneys in the uh, Crossroads Plaza. Uh, that actually seen or heard the explosion because just a block away and they were up on the 16th, 17th floor. And uh, both of them, uh, Brent Christian and uh, Steve uh, Woodland told me to leave town, get your family and leave town. Uh, and then I had a, another good friend uh, here in uh, uh, Provo that, that heard it. Uh, was also an attorney, Rich Hill, and he told me to leave town. None of those got me to, to move because I couldn't see really any connection uh, other than it being Mark Hoffman. Uh, then um, uh, I got a call from Jay Todd, the editor of the Ensign, the church. And he says, Brent, uh, some of the brethren were talking. They wanted me to call you and tell you to get your family, get out of town. Jay and I had become pretty good friends. We'd worked on some Ensign articles together on Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and so on. And that call got me moving. And, uh, and so uh, we took our family. We went down to St. George. We were down there for several days. And it was during that time that Hoffman's name came up on the news as being the prime suspect um, of this case. And I couldn't believe that. And uh, we had our kids swimming. We were at the Coral Reef Inn uh, on the boulevard in St. George. And a lady came into the swimming pool and says, is there a Brent Ashworth here? And I says, yeah, that's me. He says, well, there's a guy on the phone that says he's the chief of police in Salt Lake. He wants to talk to you. <laughs> and I thought, oh, brother. <laughs> so, uh, I get on the phone. Uh, this is Bud Willoughby, Chief of Police Salt Lake. Uh, we tracked you down. It was only a couple of days later. Ned Hoffman, like I said, in the news is a prime suspect. And I, being a prosecutor, I'd worked with the police a lot before uh, in my earlier life in uh, in Carbon County in Price. And, uh, and I knew some of them. I didn't know him, but I knew the police officers. I had a great respect for him. And I started arguing with him because uh, I felt like I could deal directly with him. And I just said, why don't you go out and find the real killer? You know, I mean, this guy, he couldn't face anybody, you know, he went into hiding all the time. And uh, at any rate, he was very professional with me. He let me blow smoke like that. I want to get my family back home. You know, uh, I don't want to be down here running, uh, especially if you don't have the, the killer yet and so on. And uh, he said, I just have two questions for you. And he says, the first is, is how come you didn't meet with Mark 
Wednesdays. You've done the previous Wednesdays at 2.30 for the past four years. I was amazed they had that much information in two days. But they had, I guess, over 100 officers working on this, federal, state, and local, because it was the first bombing deaths in Utah. So uh, they had ATF, they had FBI, they had the postal inspector, they had, uh, you know, plus the locals. And um, so um, I had to think, and I remembered, well, I didn't go up because my wife uh, talked me out of going up that day. I was supposed to meet with him, but uh, and he called my secretary that morning. He even called my wife the day before after Steve was killed and said, uh, have you heard about Steve Christensen? She said, the guy that bought the Salamander letter had been offered to me and President Hinckley earlier for a higher number, but Steve uh, Christensen had bought it. And uh, he says, Mark says, yeah, he's just been murdered. <laughs> that was the word he used. So my wife had to uh, sign a statement to that effect. But the next day he called my secretary because that was the day we met, with Brent coming up, this kind of thing. He even told Kurt Bench, Kurt Bench uh, asked me, uh, you know, are you meeting with Mark today kind of thing? Because Mark asked for you. And uh, we talked about that since too. But um, the point was, is that my wife calls me up and says, I don't want you going up today. And I said, well, how come? I'm just going up to meet Mark. Says, I don't know. I just have this feeling that you shouldn't go up today. Two people were murdered yesterday. So uh, for once, I listened to her, and we sat home and ate pizza. And Chief, uh, uh, Chief uh, Willoughby said, well, uh, probably good you listen to your wife. I didn't know at the time they had a time-dated receipt where Mark had been in our spot, Walden Book, and bought a 50-cent Wall Street Journal. Time dating was just coming in in 85, but he got a receipt, and that was in his pocket, dated less than eight minutes uh, before he blew himself up. He had just enough time to leave the Crossroads Mall, walk up to the Deseret Gym, and get in his little car and blow himself up, okay? Uh, and so uh, that was that. Well, We've been under a lot of stress that week, and uh, my wife, Charlene's family, said, well, why don't you come down to La Jolla, California, where your uncle lives, Charlene, and come come and join us for a few days. Get the, Leave the family there and so on. I felt weird about leaving the kids home. I really did. I was serving as a bishop. Uh, it was the second time in my life uh, I'd served as a bishop in Payson, Utah, and then now as a BYU at the time. Uh, 82nd Ward, and I didn't feel right about leaving the kids at home and leaving them. Uh, and I felt so uh, funny about it. It was kind of like uh, like I was getting a, uh, it was an impression. You've had impressions, you know what I mean? And this was an impression that I shouldn't leave the kids. And I, I first turned her down and her family down and they came back another time and I felt like, gee, I'm don't really have any good reason not to, but I just don't feel right about it. Anyway, I, I caved and said, yeah, let's go. And um, But I made my wife, it's the only time we've ever done this, I'm an attorney, but I, I dictated to her a whole, long of, whole lot of medical release things and all this kind of stuff that she wrote down uh, on our kids uh, while we're away. And it was the very next day when we were in La Jolla, we get down there the next day, uh, it was a Sunday. We went down on Saturday, and it was the very next day on Sunday that we get word that uh, he's our son Sam, our seven-year-old son, was involved in a terrible uh, car uh, bike accident. He was a seven-year-old on his on his bicycle. He and his brothers were uh, running, racing down the uh, to the corner by our house on the hill. Uh, runs into a feeder street that uh, is a little faster and um, speed limit and. Uh, uh, it was during a time that uh, my younger brother, and uh, who's since passed away, and uh, sister-in-law were, uh, were watching our kids. Uh, but they had to leave for one hour. 
Sunday afternoon about five uh, because that was their assignment was feeding the missionaries at the MTC, their church assignment, and they needed to go do that. They left our 12-year-old daughter, uh, Amy Jo, in charge uh, for that, uh, that hour, and she couldn't get her five little brothers to listen to her. <laughs> and we never allowed kids on bikes on Sunday. It just wasn't a Sunday activity. If we'd been home, they wouldn't have been on bikes. Uh, but uh, the cat's away, and uh, they're out uh, riding bikes. And our son, Sam, grabbed his big brother's brand new bike that he'd never been on before. It had hand brakes rather than foot brakes. And he hits the corner, says, uh, race you to the corner, John. So all his brothers are racing behind him, only he's got his big brother's bike. And they could hear the Camaro coming down the hill real fast the other direction. Uh, there were three teenagers that had been up uh, shooting uh, uh, cans and other things on the hill. And they've been drinking beer, of course, because they, uh, uh, when they saw our son, the, uh, the driver sped up, he said. Uh, and they thought he could outrace him. Instead, he hit him. And our son flew off the bike over the, the Camaro into the street. Uh, for all intensive purposes, they thought those first on the scene that he was dead. Our sister heard, our daughter heard the commotion, ran down the hill. Um, there was a crowd there about that time. Now we're in California. Uh, they they uh, anxiously try to get a hold of us and finally do. Um, uh, the first person on the scene of any responsible person was Doug Smoot, who was our stake president. And he uh, was just coming back from some church meetings. And he went and got our uh, neighbor, uh, Max Golightly. Uh, to, uh, to come help him, and they gave a, a blessing. Uh, my, my daughter uh, said that that was the first time she noticed our son's chest moving when they got the, the, uh, the blessing. Um, the ambulance arrived about that time. She and her uh, good friend, uh, uh, Christine Calder, jumped in the back of the ambulance and went to the hospital. We get the word, uh, and we don't know how to get home. This is during the time of the Reagan when Reagan had uh, downed all the planes during, during the time they, uh, you know, uh, the strike uh, air controllers. And so the planes weren't dry, weren't traveling at night. And uh, my dad-in-law that we were with was an ex-World uh, War II uh, vet as well as, uh, well as my dad, but he could fly, he had a pilot's license and he kept trying to get a, uh, a plane, but nobody would allow a plane, uh, they were grounded. They couldn't get up anyway. So we had to wait the night. That was the longest night of our married life. We've been married 51 years this year. Uh, that was the longest night you can imagine. Uh, we're told by uh, Dr. Gafain, who was one of the best uh, 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 neurologists in the country. He was the one that went back among others when James Brady was shot with Reagan to work on James Brady. So he's an excellent one. He was at Utah Valley Hospital and um, and he was calling us and telling us, well, I've got to put a shunt into his brain because uh, 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 the accident, although he took it with his head, it didn't crack his skull. And I've got to do that because his brain is, you know, uh, uh, is uh, billowing up in size to release the pressure. Uh, it may kill him, but I, he needed permission despite all those documents I left and so on releases, he wanted to talk to us. And so we gave him the okay. And of course we can't sleep or anything, can't get a flight back. Uh, and that night was really a long night. Uh, and we were told his aorta was cut, uh, which wasn't true. Uh, he did have six broken ribs, but it was the head injury that was the worst. And uh, we didn't know if he was gonna be alive or dead when we got the Hawaii special came in <laughs> the next day. Uh, 
in San Diego and we were able to fly to Salt Lake. We had a greeting committee when we got there of neighbors and others that were close friends. Uh, one that we didn't realize had lost a son in their young marriage and others uh, and my uh, bosses and associates at our company was there. And uh, we went to the hospital not knowing what to expect. Our son was wrapped in, um, uh, you know, bandages all over his head except his face. He took it with the back of his head. He looked like he was just asleep, didn't even have a scratch on his face, but he was in a deep coma. And uh, uh, it was a very trying experience. And uh, uh, of course, uh, this is right at the time of the Hoffman bombing. So Hoffman has uh, now been said to be the, uh, the prime suspect in all this. And my Wednesday meetings, rather than going up to uh, just visit with our attorneys and Mark, became uh, visiting with the, uh, uh, the police and the prosecutors. And so I went up every Wednesday. My wife took the, uh, the days. She was pregnant with our uh, son, Luke, at the time. Uh, we eventually had uh, nine children all together, seven boys and, and two daughters. Um, and uh, but at that time, we had seven children. And uh, she was pregnant with Luke, who later became a wide receiver for BYU football when he was an older kid. Um, uh, proud of him. Anyway. Uh, uh, it was three weeks into this, uh, after meeting with the police uh, on Wednesdays, every Wednesday, going through evidence that they'd gotten from Mark's burned out car uh, and, uh, and Mark's uh, uh, home. Uh, and it was about two weeks into it after I thought they had the wrong person that uh, Ken Farns, Kenny Farnsworth brings in this box of burn stuff <laughs> from his car and hands it to me and leaves the room. And I'd been telling him all along, well, yeah, why don't you go find, I, I didn't like Hoffman, he was a liar, he was a cheat, this kind of thing, but I couldn't imagine him being a killer, you know, and they had the wrong guy, <clears throat> until I saw this box of burned catalogs that were in his car, and I noticed they were catalogs, most of them were catalogs, and most of them were catalogs of books, autographs, things like that, collectibles, that I got too, so I was very familiar with them, only the difference was, I noticed that even though they were burned, most of them still had their packaging, their outer wrappers, their staples, they'd never been taken apart, the envelopes they were in. Um, and it really struck me. Hey, this guy, you know, he's not a dealer. He's not a collector. What's he doing with these catalogs, not opening them, looking at them? And Kenny left me that way for about 10 minutes and came back in. I says, you're right. I think he's guilty of murder. <laughs> I shocked him when I said that. He says, well, what happened to you? <laughs> I says, well, he's not what I thought he was. This is the first thing any collector dealer does is open their catalogs. And, uh, you know, now they're online, but back then most of them were printed. They were all printed. And uh, I says, he's not who I thought. And then it, then it maybe the second thing I had on my mind was wondering about all the stuff I bought. I think I'd bought more stuff than anybody I knew from Hoffman. Wondered if, you know, if perchance, it could be, you know, questioned now at this point. This is before Throckmorton got in the case, but I wondered about it. Uh, so, any rate, uh, our son's accident was a was a terrible thing. I went home the third Wednesday after the accident, and my wife's in the hospital. She's looking real beat up. Here she's pregnant several months, and she's got a son that may not make it, and she's sitting there by him. And we'd had a couple of times where we were told by the candy stripers that he'd flatlined, you know. And then they said their machinery was off. So we've been through it with him quite a bit, touch and go. I was in a deep coma, not knowing if he'd come out of it. And here we were about a month into it. And uh, 
I came back on a Wednesday after working with the police that day and a good friend from work came in wanting to know how my son Sam was doing. And I says, I, I knew that you don't talk about coma patients in front of them, you know, because they might be able to hear you. So I said, Joe, let's go down the hallway. So we did. I hated leaving her because she looked really distraught that night. And she told me when I came in, she says, dear, tomorrow is Thanksgiving. And she said, uh, she said, I've done absolutely nothing to prepare for Thanksgiving. I bought the food, haven't done anything. And I remember saying something really stupid to her. Well, dear, we've got nothing to be grateful for this year, so don't worry about it. I wish I could take that back, but that's what I said. And then I went down the hall with my friend and I came back and she looked happy. Her whole countenance changed. And I said, well, what happened to you? says, well, since you left, uh, the phone rang and I picked it up and it was a male voice. And he said, is this the room of Brent Ashworth's son? And she said, yes. And he says, is this Sister Ashworth? He says, yes. He says, well, this is Gordon Hinckley. I just wanted you to know that I put your son's name on the prayer roll of the First Presidency in the 12. We might add our faith with yours uh, in his recovery. And gee, that made a big difference, uh, made a huge difference with her. And that was the only time we left the hospital. We felt like, well, he's in good hands. <laughs> and we went home. My stepmother fixed the, the fixings for Thanksgiving. She's still alive. We just celebrated her 95th birthday. Dad died about 26 years ago, but my stepmother's still alive. And she fixed Thanksgiving for us, and we had a great meal. We didn't worry about her son for two hours, and then we went back. But at any rate, that gives you a little, little overview on it. Mm -hmm. uh, our son eventually uh, got out of the, the coma. We found out that uh, uh, his eyesight was pretty well gone, but his hearing was pretty good. And uh, I don't know if you remember a group called Men at Work, mm -hmm. <laughs> the Australian group, yeah. but uh, I didn't know who they were at the time. They became my favorite later because uh, <laughs> I found out that uh, Sam, our son, loved the beat of their music and so on. And uh, some of his siblings brought in some recordings. They knew that. And he started smiling and laughing and stuff. Now, his hearing was great, but his eyesight was gone and we knew he was out of the coma. So we got him out of the hospital. He'd been in the hospital several months. We took him to a place called Tiny Tots, which is for kids that are mostly um, hypocephalus, kids that are born with water on the brain or they are drowning, near drowning death victims. They're all children though. They had like 41 little kids. And, and we took our son there. My dad is an architect had donated his time to design this place years before. Talk about the irony in it. And I'm there standing by his bed one night when my dad comes in, we decide we're gonna take him home for, for Christmas, uh, which they didn't really want us to do, but we took him with his tubes and everything attached. So he was on a feeding tube through the nose and stuff. And, uh, and I asked dad, I said, did you ever think when you were donating this place, your time that you'd ever have a relative in here? He says, no, no, didn't. But, um, uh, Sam uh, rallied a little bit during that period. We actually brought him home the last uh, month or so, but uh, he, he passed away uh, just six months to the day after the accident. And uh, I, uh, he, he died on a Friday. I had to testify on the Hoffman uh, preliminary hearing on, on uh, a Wednesday and we buried him the following Friday. Wow. So that's the way that, that week went. In a nutshell, that's longer than you wanted to hear, but that's what no, I mean. no, I appreciate that. So I guess in, um, 
your faith, how did it sustain you at this point? Were you driven to your knees? Yes. Oh, yes, very definitely. Any parent, I think, that loses a child or is in that kind of situation, you have to hang on to your faith. Uh, it meant everything. In the uh, Latter-day Saint culture, because we uh, we have uh, the male members hold the priesthood, uh, we want to give uh, blessings to people that are, that are ill uh, in the hospital or some other thing. And uh, I felt really constrained by the spirit to give a blessing to my son. Maybe it was too close, but I felt like that I couldn't really ask for what we, we wanted, you know, for a re full recovery. He was just too badly brain damaged and so on. I remember Dr. Fain taking me in one day and showing me the scans of his brain. My wife didn't even want to go in. I went in and his brain was mostly gone. You know, I mean, it's just uh, those big ventricles. There's just these little lines left. And I remember I was shocked when I saw it. And Gaffain says, don't worry about that. Uh, he can relearn a lot of this. You know, he showed me the part on the frontal lobe where he can relearn a lot of this and that he was losing on the back and so on. And uh, and uh, anyway, I remember asking him, the doctor that day, that night when I went in alone, I said, doctor, how long is my son going to live? And he gave me a really strange answer. He said, oh, I think 11 years. <laughs> you know, I never asked a follow-up, but it took me 20 years thinking about that to realize that uh, 11 years, he's seven, he'd be 18. He's saying that he'd live to be an adult. Hmm. But I didn't, I didn't add him up for 20 years. I don't know what he was saying, 11 years. Well, he didn't make it that long. And when he, when he passed away, uh, Dr. Gaffain was one of the first we called. He came over and he was in, in tears too. And my wife refused to let anybody take the body. She just held, held him in her arms for hours. Hmm. Um, but at any rate, that happened just right at the time we left town on the Hoffman deal. And so I've had relatives uh, that watched the uh, Netflix and said, yeah, well, they didn't talk about the, the fourth victim, <laughs> you know, and uh, and even though uh, uh, the producers uh, asked me about him, I was kind of grateful they didn't, you know, because it's very hurtful, uh, particularly to my wife. I can talk about it. She doesn't want to talk about it. I don't blame her. So uh, anytime I've been invited to talk about Hoffman over the years, she's been a number of times, they invite my wife and I always say, well, she's not coming, but I'll be happy to, to handle it. To me, it's prophylactic. To her, it's just hurtful. Understood. Yeah, I can see that totally. Um, you know, I, I just, I want to thank you very much for sharing a lot about your faith because I just thought that was an important aspect to your story that was, I found very touching. Um, I just wanted maybe since this just is a re relatively recent thing, um, the passing of Kurt Bench. Uh, do you just have a few words you want to say about Kurt? Yeah. One of the best friends I ever had in this business. Uh, just a great guy. Uh, we knew that Kurt had been through it years ago uh, with his uh, operation on uh, the aneurysm on his uh, heart. Um, and uh, uh, he just seemed so upbeat and positive and uh, we just loved Kurt. He was just a, a real decent friend. We 
we used to joke a little bit together about Hoffman. He had a favorite quote about him. He'd say, he'd say well, Brent Hoffman always said he'd take care of his friends. <laughs> so we get a good laugh every time Kurt would, that was Kurt's comment, but he got me laughing every time we, he'd say that. <laughs> well, I guess he, he did take care of his friends. Uh, Kurt had a wonderful sense of humor. Anybody that knew him knew that. Uh, yeah, he was a, a deeply spiritual guy, and uh, we're, we're going to really miss him. Yeah. That was a privilege. I was able to meet him at the Mormon History Association. Um, yeah, so I'm grateful, friend. grateful for that. Um, just a couple little odds and ends I want to talk to you a little bit about. Um, sure. You actually have a very good friend who's a pretty famous person um, who sometimes gets into competitions with you in purchasing items. It's a, a, a gentleman by the name of Glenn Beck. Maybe talk a little bit about him. Well, Glenn's a good friend. We, we met about a decade or so ago, and it was on an exhibit we did uh, in uh, Salt Lake, the Grand America Hotel. We had some funny experiences there uh, at the time, and we've done probably five or six exhibits down in Dallas. Uh, you know, he bought uh, Mercury Studios, is a big uh, motion picture studio that he bought. I don't know if he overextended himself. <laughs> he's, he's had financial problems on and off, depending on partly his political affiliations and other things that he said over the years. But I really like Glenn. He's a great guy. I don't always agree with him politically, but uh, but I, I think as a person, he's a wonderful, wonderful person. I remember the one we did in Salt Lake years ago. He asked me, uh, he asked me, he says, you got a big Nazi flag? <laughs> <laughs> I never had a request for a Nazi flag. <laughs> and I've got a whole pile of them because, uh, you know, my father-in-law served in Germany fighting, you know, the Nazis and so on and ended with souvenirs and so on. And I had, uh, he had, had my father-in-law had, had a fire at his ranch years before and lost a big, long Nuremberg. You remember those big, long Nuremberg flags with yep. the swastika on 20-footers? Well, I found a couple at auction. I I gave him one, the first one I found. He was thrilled with it. After he passed away years ago, the family gave it back to me. And uh, so I had it for uh, for Glenn. And I said, well, I got one of those Nuremberg banners, those big 20-footers. He says, well, bring that. That'll be great. <laughs> Hang it from the ceiling of the Grand Ballroom, <laughs> Grand America Hotel. And I thought it was kind of a funny request, but I, I took it. And I took a couple others. We had a, had a big Nazi flag from a uh, battleship from a Nazi, it was a big one, big Nazi. We took that, Glenn had four safes uh, that he put for the little stuff in at night during those two or three nights we had the, and we, we covered one of them with this, it, this flag completely covered this big safe. You know? <laughs> uh, but anyway, I remember when, uh, when they, uh, they hung the, uh, the Nuremberg banner from the, the ceiling and uh, Glenn walks over to talk to me about it. And right at that time, six guys bring in this big box behind him and they undo it and it's uh uh it's the prayer at valley forge the original you know by uh uh, uh um oh uh, what's his name famous artist <laughs> oh, uh, oh uh, arnold freiberg arnold freiberg yeah yeah so yeah they bring that in they un unpackage it and they're putting that up i'd never seen the original i had a small signed copy of it uh -huh. and uh so they, they're bringing the original. That's the first time I ever saw it. And I'm watching this while Glenn's trying to talk to me about my Nazi flag they just hung. And he said, are you paying attention to me, Ashworth? I says, no, I'm looking at your, your painting. I've never seen the original. I didn't know it was that big, you know. 
we later saw it. It's, it's now at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. We saw it a couple of weeks ago. Wow. So that's where I landed. But uh, Glenn bought it. Glenn, I think, paid a million bucks for a smaller cartoon version of it uh, that he's got down in his uh, down in office. You know, it's, it's fascinating because that Freiburg painting, um, yeah. I was growing up was familiar with it. So it actually became quite popular in evangelical households as well. Yeah, I think it's popular. Uh, anyone that has, you know, wants to see a faith history of uh, George Washington in the United States. Uh, and I do in my collecting, I try to collect things uh, showing the hand of God in history. So I've got a lot of stuff like that, that, uh, you know, in Adam's letter where he's, where he's writing to Benjamin Rush, his fellow signer, and he's been accused of not being a Christian. And, and he just lambasts that, you know, he says, I am a Christian. I don't care if they're this faith or Protestant or Catholic or whatever, Armenian. He says, I am a Christian. <laughs> yeah. He's really blunt about it. Uh, you know, and I love those kind of things. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, I know our founders, most of them, uh, they, they well were deists, but, you know, the fact of the matter is that uh, some were, some weren't, but most of them were very religious. And it was, uh, you know, it was fun over the years to collect that kind of stuff. But uh, anyway, Glenn's asking me, I'm sitting there watching this, this painting go up and he says, uh, are you listening to me, Ashford? I says, no, I'm watching him. Look at your painting. He says, uh, he says, well, I want, to, want your attention on this flag. He says, when's the last time you, you unfurled this thing? I says, never. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody ever ask you? I said, nobody's ever asked me, Glenn. He asked me, he asked me, he came to me later and asked me for a KKK outfit. I guess because he thought, you're the only guy in the, and I, you know, my wife didn't even know I had one, but I had one. And I says, well, don't, don't put my name on it. I says, I collect American history. And he wanted to show the good, the bad, and, the, and so I, I had told him I had the, uh, the microphone from Tokyo Rose, and he wanted that. So he eventually, that's the only thing Glenn ever bought from me was Tokyo Rose's microphone. And I was, you know, I'm not really, a, I'm, I'm kind of opposed to selling anything. I'm trying to build a museum right yeah. now. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, in my, uh, in my book, maybe I can show this show and tell. Uh -huh. uh, in my book, we give a kind of an overview of how broad the, the collection is. This came out in 2017. And uh, we recently uh, uh, put out a catalog of some of the LDS stuff yeah. uh, for the 200th anniversary of the church. But at any rate, uh, I, Glenn brought a lot of the stuff out. He, I mean, we had good stuff too. We had stuff of uh, I've the last known letter of Martin Luther King Jr. before he's uh, killed at the hotel and uh, motel. And, uh, we put a lot of uh, good stuff, you know, out too, but he wanted this weird stuff too that I guess he thought I would probably have, and I did, And but I don't want my name attached to it. It's funny because Glenn took a lot of heat on that, on those Nazi flags in the, you know, some articles in the local newspapers, but he was, was a fascist and he was hiding, mm -hmm. the, you know, and they didn't come from him. <laughs> and I was, I was glad in a way that he, uh, he ran uh, interference for me on those because <laughs> uh, I was the owner, but I didn't want people knowing that I was the owner. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I never put them out. Those are, you know, my family fought the Nazis, fought the Japanese, fought, you know, when they were our enemies and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but still, they're part of our history, aren't they? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I feel like it's important. My goal ultimately was to get a museum on American history. I don't know if we'll make it. Uh, Glenn uh, made me a big offer for my national stuff a few years ago. But I think he had some financial difficulties and things didn't work out on it. Uh, I remember 
handing me this $100,000 check on a $10 million offer just for the national stuff. And he was going to build this wing, the, the Ashworth wing in his uh, Dallas museum. It was a wonderful idea. It's a great idea, but uh, it didn't come to fruition at the time. And I didn't, sp I didn't spend a dime. I didn't dare, you know, cash a check or anything, but he's a dare friend. And uh, he's uh, spent some time with my kids. He's a, uh, He's uh, uh, really gone the extra mile with me on a personal basis, trying to trying to help on different things. And uh, I adore the man. I think he's just terrific. Um, like I say, I don't always see eye to eye with his beliefs, political beliefs, uh, but uh, I do believe many of them and I, I agree with many, but uh, he's, he's a real uh, humanitarian. I don't know if you know about some of his humanitarian work, but he, mm -hmm. he does some, some great things there. And uh, my friend Tim Ballard works with him quite a bit. Tim's been to my store a few times. In fact, the second time he says, Brent, this is better than your old store. I'm down in the underground <laughs> in a building, an old building in Provo, down in the basement. And he says, well, this is a real man's cave down here. <laughs> and uh, Glenn's been down there too with his wife um, and David Barton. And so- and David uh, Barton, David Barton is an evangelical. Yeah, oh yeah, he is, and he's a dear friend. In fact, we we joke together because we're like uh, like Glenn and I. We we seem to go after the same items okay. <laughs> at auctions. And I beat him out on a on a uh, a Bible, uh, David Barton, a few years ago, uh, which was unusual. It was one I didn't realize he was going after too. It was uh, it was Henry Clay Jr. It was Henry Clay's son that was killed as a war hero during the Mex battle of during the War of Mexico. And it was his personal, uh, his personal Bible he carried with him that was presented, inscribed to him by his dad, by uh, uh, Henry Clay Sr. And at uh, any rate, uh, uh, you know, Dave, Dave and I have joked about that a lot. Dave has a museum, you know, down in, uh, in uh, the Dallas area. And oh. he's helped us with our, uh, when we've done exhibits and things, he's helped us with some of those. Uh, he had uh, something that I'd never seen before. He said it was a recreation, but you've heard of the Marines being called the Leathernecks? Mm -hmm. uh, well, Dave actually had leather that was meant to go around the necks of our Marines uh, that were uh, getting attacked by the Barbary Pirates in 1805 during the Jefferson administration. And uh, they were trying to hack off their heads. And so they, they put leather around their necks to keep them from getting their heads chopped off. And uh, anyway, David had a couple of those. He said they were not originals, but they, they look good. Wow. <laughs> and I didn't know the story of the Leathernecks. That's how they got their, Interesting. You know, the term Leatherneck was from the Barbary Wars. And well, you really tell, uh, tell David Barton that I had the opportunity as a young man to meet uh, President Bush, the uh, elder. And I presented him a copy of one of David Barton's books and uh, got a letter from the White House thanking me for giving them that book. So that's wonderful. Well, I, I met President H.W. Bush and and uh, his uh, son I never met, but uh, George W. inscribed a uh, inscribed a Bible to me. So uh, and uh, they were instrumental friends in getting that uh, down there. In fact, it was interesting. I was in Glenn's office one time a few years ago, and it was after uh, Ben Leiden had uh, had bought the farm. And, uh, and our guys had gone in and killed him. And uh, Glenn in his office has a bunch of cross swords from, the, the, from troopers that have come back and so on. 
it's quite quite interesting to see his office. And uh, he told me, he says, I'll tell you a story you're not going to find anywhere. I says, well, what's that? And he says, uh, well, he said, uh, when uh, uh, after uh, uh, after Bin Laden had been uh, killed, that uh, President Obama asked for the uh, for the uh, the rifle that, that took him out. And he said uh, the guys were kind of offended at that request because because uh, the Obama administration made it a point to try to to take everybody's guns away and. The NRA is a big deal with Glenn and his support, you know, whether you support him or not, I'm just saying. Uh, and uh, so he says, you know what they did with that gun? He says the special uh, forces gave it to the Bush Museum. <laughs> I got a kick out of that. But, uh, you know, and uh, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, I, uh, uh, you know, uh, my, my political leanings are not really one way or the other but i just thought it was a funny story yeah so uh, uh <laughs> that's great that's great yeah. well i just wanted to kind of maybe finish up a little bit here and just say you know one of the things you had talked to me about was because see I, I like to talk about the convergence of our worlds and you had mentioned to me that your son is actually an evangelical christian and you get along with him great oh yeah sure you bet um and uh yeah, I mean, I, I I love people of other faiths. I've got uh, a lot of evangelical friends that are very good friends. And uh, you see, I, I think uh, Joseph Smith, in my opinion, was a seeker after the truth. Uh, and he found it in his in his way through his revelations and so on. And, uh, and I have to respect, I know Joseph Smith did too, other people of other faiths on their own journeys, you know, trying to find God. Uh, and... Uh, Let's face it, uh, he's, uh, uh, he's no respecter of persons. He loves us all of his children. That makes sense, or doesn't it? It makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Whether they're uh, black, white, yellow, red, whatever they are, doesn't matter. Uh, he loves all of his children equally. And it's a good reminder that uh, people of all faiths that are sincere about it are trying to find uh, the truth in, in their own lives. and. Uh, uh, I have great respect for evangelicals because I know they're they're seeking uh, the Lord in their way, and I think that's great. Uh, people that aren't seeking or that are antagonistic or atheistic, I worry about because <laughs> I don't know how. It's kind of like Lincoln, you know. Lincoln said, "I can I can imagine somebody looking down at the earth, keeping their eyes down." And being an atheist, but he says, I can't imagine anybody looking up into the heavens and saying there was no God. I love that quote from Lincoln. Well, I think it's a thing it's is great. true. It's a great quote. Well, uh, Brent, I just want to thank you so much for coming on to my program. You um, bet. Thank I want you. to just remind my audience to like and subscribe, uh, hit the like and subscribe button, and to ring the notification bell to be informed when a new video is released on YouTube. Um, it was a real pleasure. Brent, for you to come on. I want to thank you for taking your time and, and having this wonderful opportunity to talk with you. Thoroughly enjoyed it, Steve. Thank you for your kindness. Appreciate it. Thank you. And I look forward to us meeting up with you for lunch next time you're out visiting in Sarasota. So you bet. Look forward to it. <laughs> so everybody, have yourself a great day. We're going to get through this epidemic together and uh, peace and be well.